So we continue in our Advent series this morning, taking a look specifically at the women that Matthew mentioned in his good old section of begats, the genealogy of Christ, our Savior. Five women in all. We've already looked at Tamar and Rahab. This morning we look at Ruth. Next Sunday, coincidentally, we look at Bathsheba, who we will read about tomorrow, as Providence would have it in our Trinity Together reading plan. Imagine that. I'd like to say I planned it all the way back, way back when, but um, you know better. All right, so here's why we're doing this, though. Matthew is the author of a gospel, this account of the life of Christ. And a gospel is a funny thing. It's not a biography. It's way too selective to be a biography. It leaves out too much. It's selective in what it presents because there's a goal, there's a purpose. Matthew's writing this account because he wants to persuade the reader that after having read about this person that Matthew's writing about, Matthew wants you to believe the person. Matthew wants you to trust the person, to place your faith in Jesus. And so everything that Matthew does as a writer of his gospel is done with that purpose in mind, that we might read Matthew's gospel and we might believe, that we might trust, that we might place our faith in the one who came to rescue And so Matthew mentions all the people that he does in this genealogy, men and women, because they help him accomplish his purpose. See, if he wants folks to believe and trust this rescuer that he's writing about, he places people in this genealogy to introduce this gospel. He places them and he chooses the ones that highlight both who the rescuer is and what the rescuer came to do. So this morning as we look at Ruth, the story of Ruth, we will see both of those things. More of who the rescuer is and more of how and why it is that we need rescue. And so that's admittedly a pretty narrow focus that we're going to bring to the story of Ruth this morning. There's so much more there in Ruth, but we're going to focus narrowly on that purpose. And as such, with the four chapters that are in Ruth, I've needed to narrow it down a bit. So I've picked a a few verses out of each of those chapters, and I'll try to briefly fill in the gaps in between. And so as such, it doesn't really lend itself to me having you stand for the reading of God's Word, though hopefully all of our hearts would still give God's Word the same reverence that our posture is designed to reflect when we do stand. So as the book of Ruth opens, we find a family. A family that has fled the promised land, Bethlehem to be precise. They fled because of famine. There was no food. And so this husband and wife and their two sons flee to Moab. And they find food there. But they also find a whole lot of tragedy there. Soon after their arrival, the husband dies, leaving his wife, whose name is Naomi, a widow. The two sons would go on to marry local girls. They would marry Moabites. And about ten years passes, and then each of the sons dies. And so this family is just overwhelmed by tragedy. Three wives without their husbands, one mom without 
her two sons. So Naomi decides that it's time to return home to Bethlehem. She's heard that the famine has ended there. And her two daughters-in-law start to go with her. But she says, no, you need to stay. Remain here. Don't come with me. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. There's nothing for a foreigner, and that's what you would be. There's nothing for a foreigner in Bethlehem. And so one daughter-in-law heeds this advice, and she turns back. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, does not. And so this is where we pick up our first section of verses, beginning in chapter 1, verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So surprise, that's not about a marriage. Oops. (laughs) Okay, it's about a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Chapter 2, verse 1, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. All right, so Boaz we meet in these verses, this relative of the deceased husband and father. And this man will give provision and protection to Ruth, and by extension, provision to Naomi, as well. And Ruth is stunned by this kindness that Boaz shows to her. And so we pick up these three verses uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so Boaz would go on to display even more kindness and even more generosity toward Ruth. And so the situation then for Ruth and Naomi is about as good as one could hope for given all the things that have transpired in their lives. But Naomi is going to press for a little bit more. She wants more. She wants more for Ruth. And so she hatches a plan. She sets up this bizarre 
middle-of-the-night encounter between Ruth and Boaz. And Scripture is purposefully vague there. We're not really sure what all Naomi has intended here. Um, But the plan is that Ruth will sneak up on Boaz while he's asleep. And so when she does, he wakes up. And we pick this up in chapter 3, verse 9. He wakes up and questions, I think appropriately, so who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. All right, so it's a strange thing for us to understand in the 21st century exactly what's going on here. But uh, with the survival of the family being so necessary, and we saw this a little bit with the story of Judah and Tamar, survivals of families are so crucial and, and difficult at, at times. So there are, there are laws in place that uh, when, a, when a woman is widowed, there are other men who should step in and continue on a line for this, for this family And so Boaz isn't that guy. There's someone nearer, a closer relative of Elimelech's that should be. And so that's the one that Boaz is going to. He goes to this closer relative in question, and he says, hey, there's this land that you can buy. And the guy says, hey, that's great, I'll buy it. But then Boaz says, but you get a woman with the land. It's a package deal. And he says, ooh, not great. Um, and uh, he said, I can't do that. It would mess with my inheritance. So, so you, 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 you take the land and her. And, and so there's this public ceremony with witnesses where this fellow officially relinquishes his rights to the land and to the woman who comes with the land. Uh, so Boaz promises to buy it in the presence of all these folks. And here's how the story ends. We'll read in uh, Chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate, all these witnesses, and all the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What an amazing story. 
What a beautiful story of of, of redemption and of, and of love. We've, we've got this beautiful hero here in Boaz who is so kind and generous. We've even got a heroine in Ruth and how she insists on staying with her mother-in-law and works so diligently to provide for, for them both. And so tons of sermons have been preached by folks out of the book of Ruth, sermons encouraging folks to be faithful and courageous like Ruth, sermons encouraging folks to be kind and, and generous like Boaz, even sermons that say, hey, be careful to not be bitter like Naomi. And all of those completely miss the point of this story. This story is about a Redeemer who ultimately points to the Redeemer. See, the moral of the story here is not to behave It's not to act like and emulate these heroes. The goal here, just like with Matthew's gospel, the goal here is that we would trust. The goal here is that we would believe. And so in all of these stories we're looking at from the genealogy, all of these women and and the, the tales surrounding them, I've been saying that they help us understand who Jesus is better, and they help us to see why we need to be rescued and what it is that we need to be rescued from. And both of those things still hold true this morning. We see both of those here in Abundance and Ruth. And so sort of two main things to take away from this story, and they're in your uh, outline there in the worship folder. The first is to see what a powerful rescuer we have. What an amazing and powerful rescuer. And the second would be to see that when he rescues He brings about a heart change with that rescue. So the first one here, what we most need to see from Ruth's story is not how great Ruth is. It's not how great Boaz is, but how great our God is. Our God who took on flesh, our God who became a man who left his throne in heaven to come and rescue us. So the the story of Ruth shows us a rescuer who is powerful, one that's tenacious, one that's jealous and fiercely committed to our rescue. A rescuer who won't let anything stop him from rescuing those he wants to rescue, not even our bitter, rebellious, runaway hearts. Even those are no match for our powerful rescuer. And this is really, really good news for us. So I want you to consider Naomi just a minute. What what a tragic story unimaginable loss and heartache. And this tragedy makes her bitter, right? In in fact, she wants a legal name change, right? She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi literally means pleasant. Don't call me that. Instead, call me, change my name to Mara, which literally means bitter. She says, look what God has done to me. And we need to hold on just a minute and and put things into perspective a bit by going back to the beginning. The very beginning of this book, the very first verse of the book of Ruth says, and and it might just seem like a throwaway line, "In, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now see, that's not just a reference point for time telling you when this happened. It also tells us a good bit about the condition of of the people's hearts. See, the the time of the judges. Now, those were dark, dark days 
for God's people. And there's this refrain that keeps getting repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Over and over and over again. That's sort of how people are living life. Whatever seems right to them. And that was very much on display in this family. So, so trace these events with me, if you will. There, there was famine in the land, which was very likely the result of God's displeasure with his people because they were doing what was right in their own eyes instead of his. So famine comes. Rather than repenting and seeking the Lord, they said, we're leaving. We're abandoning this land that God gave us. We're fleeing to pagan territory. We don't need you, God. If you're not going to give food for us here, fine. We can take care of ourselves. That's what the family was saying by leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab. Could this be why Elimelech died soon after they got there? It's a definite possibility. Well, then what next? Well, then comes two marriages of these Israelite boys to pagan women from Moab. Something that God said very, very clearly with no uncertain terms, do not marry folks who don't fear me. Do not marry folks who serve other gods. Nothing good will come from it. But they did what was right in their own eyes. And they married these women anyway. And lots of time passes, and neither woman gives birth. Could this be a sign of God's displeasure? Withholding the blessing of children. It's a definite possibility. But yet again, there's no repentance, there's no turning to him, no seeking to him. And then these two sons die. Could this? I think we get the picture. And so Naomi, Mara, is understandably bitter, but she fails to connect the dots. And see the root cause of the tragedy that leads to the bitterness. And y'all, herein lies the good news. The scandalously good news. That God doesn't wait for us to connect the dots. God doesn't require us to connect the dots in order to become worthy of rescue. He's such a powerful rescuer. He won't let anything stand in the way of our rescue, even us. And our hard-heartedness, and our stubbornness, and our failure to connect the dots... So even our stubborn, 
runaway hearts are no match for our powerful rescuer. So that's the first thing we need to come away from, from the story of Ruth. You're not too far gone. You can't be. Such a thing doesn't exist. The other big thing we need to see about our powerful rescuer is his heart for the outsider. See, God's plan has always been to call to himself a a band of worshipers that is beautifully diverse. People from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And so he starts out by calling one people to himself, and he gave that people the amazing privilege of being his channel of blessing to all the other peoples, to all the other nations in the world. And he is fiercely committed to this plan. We saw last week how fiercely he was committed to bringing Rahab and her family into his people. So fiercely committed that these spies just so happened to wander into Rahab's house out of all the houses in Jericho. Just so happened that they chose her house. And so this week, it just so happens that Ruth ended up out of all the fields near Bethlehem that she could have gone to glean. It just so happens to be in Boaz's field. And it just so happens, if you read the whole thing carefully, that Boaz just happened to return to check on the field and to check on his laborers at just the precise moment that Ruth is there gleaning. It just so happened because God is fiercely committed to seeing his plan through. See, so fiercely committed to working out the details necessary for these individual rescues, but also so that these begats would continue, right? All these begats had to fall in line. So-and-so had to beget so-and-so who had to beget so-and-so so that ultimately the Redeemer would come. So, so that ultimately the birth would take place in Bethlehem that was supposed to take place in Bethlehem. Our powerful rescuer is fiercely committed to all of this. So now the second big thing to look at is how our rescuer changes hearts when he rescues. So there's two very interesting contrasts set up here between characters in, in the story of Ruth. The first contrast is between Orpah and Ruth, these two daughters-in-law. So Ruth says, turn back, don't come with me. Uh, Naomi says, turn back, don't come with me. And, um, and, and Orpah makes the sensible, logical decision. And she says, okay, I'm going back. <laughs> I'm going back to mama and daddy in my native land with all my Moabite friends. That's, that's the logical, seems right in your own eyes decision to make. But Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, says, Uh, no, I'm going with you and you can't stop me. And it's not that she's just a really nice daughter-in-law, right? It's not that Ruth necessarily feels this tight bond and kinship with Naomi. Naomi doesn't really even seem to be like that pleasant of a person, honestly, right? No, it's none of that. The key is in in verse 16 in chapter 1. The key here is that Ruth has come, though she was a Moabite and a pagan and a worshiper of all kinds of little g-gods, somehow through this process, 
Ruth has come to believe in and to fear the God of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. God's done a work in her heart. He, he's drawn her to himself. He's rescued her, and, and this is her confession of faith, much like we saw with Rahab last week. He's my God. I'm going to go with you because you're my people, yeah, but more importantly, your God is now my God. And so she makes this confession of faith that shows a, a changed heart. That, that's the only thing that could explain a Moabite acting this way. Because every typical Moabite would respond like Orpah and say, you're right, I am heading back to Moab. But Ruth doesn't. Ruth doesn't. Ruth's eyes, and more importantly, her heart, have been changed because God has rescued her. The other contrast that I think is, is important to note is between Boaz and Mr. No Name. Like we, we, don't even, we don't know what his name is. The other guy, the, the one who is actually supposed to be the kinsman redeemer, the, the closer relative. He's not even named in the story. See, he had the obligation to help Ruth out. And here again, we find someone making the the wise, logical, common sense, seems right in my own eyes decision. He says, hey, I could could marry her and take this land, but that's going to ultimately hurt me in the end. That's going to hurt my bottom line. That's going to mess with the rest of my inheritance, the Scripture tells us. And so he says, I'll pass. (laughs) No thanks. But Boaz, even though he's not technically obligated, he's more distant. And it probably hurts his inheritance just the same way that it hurts Mr. No Name, but he does it anyway. See, Boaz, Boaz's thinking has been affected. It's been changed. He's no longer thinking, well, what's right in my eyes? There's some other standard at work here. His response was, was uncommon. It was, it was sacrificial. It was generous beyond measure. And so the temptation, again, is for us to look at Ruth, to look at Boaz, and I think, man, if I could just be more like that. I need to strive to be more like those people. They sure are great people. That's the temptation when instead we need to see Ruth... We need to see Ruth leaving her home when she didn't have to, risking her life and her future, caring for and serving others. We need to see Boaz making a sacrifice he wasn't required to make, being generous beyond belief. And we need to see how these two lowercase r rescuers point us to the rescuer. We need to see how the very way that these good salt-of-the-earth people act is a direct result of the fact that they've been rescued and they've been changed. That's why they're acting the way they are. Because they've been rescued. Their hearts have been changed. Changed by the very one who loved them and gave himself for them. The same one who has loved us and who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom For many, that's what we're supposed to see.
God, a powerful rescuer, and he changes our hearts when he rescues us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, may we read your scriptures and may we see what you want us to see. And we know that ultimately that's Jesus. We know ultimately you want us to see how all of these things were leading up to him. How all of these things were foreshadowing what he would do. How all of these things were were wonderful in one aspect but still lacking in another. And they weren't quite there And they weren't supposed to be there until we got to Jesus. And we saw a perfect rescuer and a perfect redeemer. The perfect example of one who left his home when he didn't have to. And made a sacrifice that he wasn't obligated to make. May we see Jesus. May we be changed by Jesus. These things we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing in response.